As we come now to the Word of God, it's my prayer that this message from the Word about Jesus Christ, the message of the Gospel that we will hear from the Word of God, would not come in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That we would be convinced, that we would be convicted that we need Jesus. That Jesus is alive and that he's greater than all of our sin. Encourage our hearts, strengthen our heart. Holy Spirit, work in these next few minutes this Christmas morning to exalt the person and work of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Who do you say that I am? This is the most important question ever asked in the history of mankind. Who do you say that I am? It was asked by our Lord Jesus Christ. And your answer to that question will determine your eternal destiny either in a place called heaven or a place called hell. Your answer to that question. This Christmas morning, you must decide. You must get off the fence. What is your answer? Who is the baby in the manger. Will we simply respect him? Or we, will we reject him? Or will we realize who he is, who we are, and receive him? I was at Fleet Farm and I saw the special edition of Life magazine. As you can see upon the screen in front of you. And that question is taken from our passage this morning in the Gospel of Luke. Please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9. And for visitors and children, whoever doesn't have a Bible... All of the scriptures that we will use this morning are in your bulletin handout. So pull those out, turn to Luke chapter 9. Our passage will be verses 18 through 22. Now in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is finishing up his ministry in the northern part of Israel in a place called Galilee. It's two and a half years that he has spent with his disciples, training his disciples for two and a half years. And in Luke chapter 9, in the middle of the chapter, he will turn his sights south towards Jerusalem. He will set his eyes upon the cross, and he will begin to travel to the cross of Calvary. So, after the most astounding miracle recorded in the book, the feeding of the 5,000. And after Jesus prays to the Father, he gives his disciples a final exam after two and a half years of internship and training. And this final exam is composed really of two questions. And as I read our text this morning in 18 through 22, let's see if you can find 
the two questions, the final exam questions for the disciples of Jesus Christ and for us today. Luke chapter 9, verse 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So I think you found the final exam questions. There are two of them. They'll form the outline of this message this morning. Question number one. The question about the crowds. The question about the crowds. Look at verse 18 again. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? It's just his 12 disciples he's asking them. He wants to know, who do the people? That word probably is better translated, who do the crowds say that I am? This is a word, the word for crowds is used over and over in the book of Luke very frequently to talk about a group of people who are very, very interested in Jesus Christ. Very, very curious about Jesus Christ. A mass of people who followed him around everywhere that he went. I've only been to one professional golf tournament. Tiger Woods was playing. Wanted to sneak a peek. Couldn't do it because hole number one, the massive crowd would follow Tiger Woods to hole one, and then they would follow him to hole two, and they'd fall and so on and so forth for the whole tournament. They were interested in watching the spectacle and seeing the spectacle of Tiger Woods. And so also the crowd in the case of Jesus was just excited for the spectacle of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, healing people born blind with incurable diseases, watching demons be cast out of people who had superhuman strength, seeing the dead raised up. So they have some interest in Jesus. They have some connection to Jesus. This crowd is not opposed to Jesus. This crowd respects Jesus. You could say that they are very spiritual people. The other day I was eating at one of my favorite restaurants in downtown St. Paul called Day by Day Cafe. And I had met another pastor and was doing some leadership development with another pastor. And before I got there, this pastor had, was speaking to our, our waiter about Jesus. And the waiter was so interested in Jesus. He was so spiritual. He meditated. He told us all about this. He thought about eternity. He prayed. He had, a cr he had cross tattoos. He had, but as we talked, 
he was really interested in Jesus. He really respected Jesus. But he didn't know who Jesus was and what he had come to do. And he thought that he was okay. He was like the crowds, very interested in Jesus Christ. Who do the people, who do the crowds say that I am? Well, their answer, they, the, the disciples answered in verse 19. They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. So the answer of the crowds was, this is a special. This, this guy is special. Maybe this is John the Baptist. Yes, his He's been killed, but maybe he's come back from the grave. Or maybe this man, this Jesus from Nazareth, was the prophet Elijah. That the last book of the Bible, the book of Malachi, prophesied that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Perhaps this is another Old Testament prophet. Maybe Jeremiah, who had risen from the grave. He is a special man. He is a, a great prophet. He's a great man. I mean, can you imagine how great this man is? Did you see what he did? There were 15,000 people here. There were two little fish, five small barley loaves. He fed all 15,000 of them. Can you imagine what we've got in our hands here? Who do the crowds say that I am? Oh, they respected Jesus. Oh, they followed Jesus. Oh, they had interest in Jesus. Oh, they believed that Jesus existed. But did they really pass the test of the first question? Does, do you think reading this passage that this was enough for Jesus? Do you really think that whatever believing in Jesus means... The crowd had it, or the interested people in your life, or maybe you sitting there with some interest to say, that is that really what faith in Jesus is? We have to think a little bit. In the special edition of Life magazine about Jesus, I wouldn't recommend you buy it. I read the whole thing put on my seatbelt, and I read the whole thing. The answer to that magazine was the answer of the crowds. Let me quote from the article. Quotes to others, Jesus is just a man, albeit a man who spurred through his teachings and exemplary life several faiths now incorporated into Christianity. And to still others, he is little more than a myth. Maybe he lived, they say, but his stature as a transcendent human being is a novelistic invention of Paul and the gospel writers who required a charismatic anchor for their nascent or their early churches. He is, some say, an idea. End quotes. Here is what, and I love this. Are you ready for this? Here is what Professor Emeritus of Middle East Religions and Archaeology in Islamic Law and the Director of the Institute of the Study of Judeo-Christian Origins at California State University says, speaking of the Dead Sea Scrolls and Jesus Christ. Quotes. The scrolls indicate that the kind of group he, Jesus, would have been born into was dedicated to God in a very extreme, purist manner with a large set of Puritan regulations, vegetarianism, never eating unclean foods, particular bathing practices. And then he says, I place Jesus if he existed. I place Jesus if he existed 
among these groups, end quote. One of the leading Jesus scholars on the face of this planet is unsure that Jesus existed. He goes on to say this, quotes, many of the details in the Gospels we should recognize as legends created without any historical information that say what a great, precious person Jesus was, end quotes. So the records of the Gospels are legends and fabrications, a great, precious person. Who do the crowds say that I, say that I am? At the end of the article, speaking about the impact of Jesus around the globe for over 2,000 years, they quote one of the founding fathers of the United States of America, Benjamin Franklin. He says this, quotes, As to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think his system of morals and his religion, as he left them to us, is the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. But I apprehend it has received various corrupt changes, and I have with most of the present dissenters in England some doubts as to his divinity, in quotes. preaching of Whitfield stirred him up a bit. Much respect, much interest in Jesus, but is that saving faith? The scholar Peter Bain says, quotes, the gospel at Dartmouth, Dartmouth, one of the leading biblical scholars, says, the, quotes, the gospel writers were creating a moral tale around a real man, and they had their reasons. I realize much of what they wrote wasn't literal history. I realize much of what we know about Jesus is novelistic, but I act as if it isn't. End quotes. Who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the crowds today say that Jesus is? A great and precious man, if he existed. And the documents that speak about him are fabrications and myths. Let me ask you a question. Do the scholars, do you pass the first question of the final exam? Come on, you know the verse, John 3, 16. We could say it together. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Is this knowledge of Jesus, this respect for Jesus, is this really belief in Jesus? Is this believing the Word of God? Who do the crowds, who do scholars today say was lying in the manger 2,000 years ago? And let me ask you a question. Will your answer to that question, will the scholar's answer to that question result in being in heaven with Jesus forever or in a place called hell? Let's think about it. So the first question was about the crowds. The second question was a question to the disciples. A question to the disciples. Verse 20, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Jesus isn't interested in generic answers of a mob of people. He's interested in you. He's interested in me. It's emphatic in the Greek text. Who do you say that I am? He wants to know what the disciples, who, who they think that he is. And Peter, representing the twelve, answers the question, speaking for them all. And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. The word Christ, as one scholar said, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. It means the anointed one. And so Peter is saying that Jesus is none other 
than the promised Messiah, that Jesus is none other than the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that He's none other, now listen carefully, than the long-expected Isaiah chapter 9, King of Israel, who would come and He would rescue and redeem a people, His people, from their enemies, from their enemies. He indeed is the king, a conquering king of Israel. And they're right. They didn't understand fully, but this was revealed to them from God himself. And in other parallel passages, Jesus says, you got it, and it wasn't you. The Holy Spirit revealed this truth to you, that they are the Christ of God. Now, I believe that the Scriptures are not mythological, that it's real history. And so to find out what Peter means by the Christ of God, let's listen to the voices. Let's listen to the answers of those who were were interacting with the baby in the manger recorded in the Gospel of Luke. Who is the Christ of God? What does that even mean? Let's let the Bible tell us. How would other characters in the book of Luke answer this question? Let's find out. Take your Bibles and you have your handout. Let's look at the first answer, the answer of the angel named Gabriel. The angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph one of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, this angel said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus." He will be great, and He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and His kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. Let's pretend you're reading this for the first time. Who is the Christ of God? Well, a real human being conceived in a womb. He will be great. He's the Son of the Most High. He is the promised King of Israel will take David's throne and be the forever king in the line of David. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit to the Virgin Mary. Therefore, he's a holy child and sinless. He is the Son of God. Consider the second answer. Consider Elizabeth, Mary's cousin's answer. Look down at Luke chapter 1 and verse 39. Let these words hit you. Verse 39, now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. That was John the Baptist that was in Elizabeth's womb. The baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, this is almost a prophecy, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me, watch this, speaking of Mary, in verse 43, that the mother of my Lord, who can say that? that the mother of my Lord would come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. 
Blessed is she who believes that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And so Elizabeth, full of the Spirit, speaking about baby Jesus in the womb, says to Mary, the mother of my Lord, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the name of God in the Old Testament. Elizabeth is telling us through the Spirit that this is God visiting us, God with us, the Son of God who's take upon flesh, dwelling in that womb, Emmanuel, God with us, visiting us in the womb of Mary. Who is the babe in the manger? Listen to the third answer of Elizabeth's husband, Zacharias, also filled with the Spirit and prophesying in Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Verse 68, listen to these words. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Here's why he is blessed. For he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Verse 69. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. And look at verse 71. I apologize, I forgot to put it in the bulletin. Verse 71. Sal Here's what the holy prophets from old said. Verse 71. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And Zacharias continues to speak and, and prophesy. Look at verse 76. And now Zacharias is speaking about his boy, John the Baptist, who would go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Look at verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways. Who did He prepare the way for? The Lord. Who is the Lord He's speaking about? Jesus. Called the Lord here. Verse 77, watch this. To give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Peter says he's the Christ of God. What does that mean? Well, he is the horn of salvation, a king from the house of David who will rid us of our enemies. How will He save us? By the forgiveness of sins. What basis will He save us? Because of the mercy of our God. He's the light of the world. The sunrise would visit us. He would shine to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. He would bring us. He would guide us into the way of peace, peace with God. The fourth answer in Luke chapter 2, the voice of another angel to the shepherds. Luke chapter 2 and verse 8, who is this one? In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away 
from then into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Who is he? He's the Savior. He's the Christ. He's the Lord of glory. And he's a baby lying in a feeding trough. Good news for broken outcasts like shepherds and like us. Who is the Christ of God? There's one more answer I want to share with you. Jesus himself. What did he say? Luke chapter 5, verse 20. Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Verse 21 of Luke chapter 5. The scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins have been forgiven you or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Who do you say that I am? The answer of the crowd of most people today, very spiritual, very, very spiritual. If he existed, he's a precious person, a miracle worker, a great prophet, a philosopher, a moralist, a myth, a transcendent human being, the best idea known to man. But who do you say that he is this Christmas morning? Do you say that he is the Christ of God? Fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, the horn of your salvation. Now, listen carefully. The horn is not a musical instrument in that passage. The horn is an instrument of war. The horn is a solid ivory weapon on the head of an ox or a ram. It's dangerous. Ask Andy Henches. It's dangerous. It's a weapon of attack. And so the picture of the Messiah, the Christ, the horn of salvation is one of power, is one of strength, is one of offensive aggression. He has raised up a horn of salvation as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. A quote of Psalm 106 verse 10. The horn of salvation will conquer our enemies, described as those who hate us. Now listen very carefully this morning. Who or what is our greatest enemy? 
I hope you see this almost like for the first time. Turn back to Luke chapter 1. Look at what Zacharias said in verse 77. To give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. What and who are the greatest enemies that must be conquered offensively by the horn of our salvation? which was a small group, we'd ask it rhetorically, I'd want to get an answer from you. Look at the text. It is sin that must be forgiven. It is complete pitch darkness in which we are plunged. It is the shadow of death in which we are immersed. It is not having peace with God, being enemies of God, separated from God. The greatest enemy is sin, darkness, death, and the author of those things, the propagator of those things, the greater accuser of our brethren, the devil himself, is the enemy that underlines everything in which the baby came to destroy. So, how will the Christ of God I want you to see him as a conquering king. I want you to see him as the powerful one. How will the Christ of God run his enemies through? The disciples are like, yeah, the Christ of God. But then a curveball came. We see it in Luke chapter 9, the next verse, in verse 21. Back to our passage. Luke chapter 9, verse 21. Peter wasn't wrong. Verse 21, but he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. Because they were right. He was the horn of salvation. He was the Christ of God. But then he threw him a curveball, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. The Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the leaders. He must be killed and he must be raised up on the third day in order to run his enemies through. In order to redeem us, in order to save us, in order to show mercy on us, in order to forgive us our sins, in order to shine the light into our darkness in order to guide our feet in the path of peace. It was a shocking move. They did not get it until they had the Spirit. They did not understand the glory of the cross, the power of the cross. For the Son of God came to this earth and visited us he gave up his glory he took upon himself this stuff he lived among us he should have come in power and in glory and in strength and in honor and in majesty for that baby is the king of kings and the lord of lords that baby is the light of the world that baby is the creator and sustainer of the universe holding the universe together by the word of his power but he came in poverty and misunderstanding and rejection and dirt in a feeding trough he was born in a barn and he did this for you 
And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, the Bible says that a curse lies upon all who sin, on all who do not keep the law of God absolutely perfectly. Galatians 3.10 says this, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. How are you doing abiding by all things written in the book of the law? Seriously. The Bible says, do not lie. The Bible says, don't take the Lord's name in vain. The Bible says, don't look at another man, another woman with lust in your hearts. The Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Who's done that today? Love your neighbor as yourself. No, we have broken God's law and are cursed, plunged into darkness and death, not at peace with God, enemies against God. For the Bible says, and the wages of sin is death. But the Christ of God has visited us, the horn of our salvation, See him as a mighty warrior, even in his first coming. He came to go after the greatest enemies of all. Look at 1 John 3 eight. Don't turn there. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. So... Our greatest enemy is the devil himself who wields the power of death through the sting of sin. And Jesus Christ, the Christ of God, the horn of our salvation, has destroyed Satan condemning sin in his flesh. He has conquered sin. He has devoured death. He has crushed the head of the serpent Satan of old. How did he do it? It was shocking. Not how they thought he would do it. Where did the glorious might, where is the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ seen in its brightness? Where did the power of the kingly horn of our salvation flash forth against the greatest enemies? When the horn of your salvation hung upon the cross of Calvary. In order to rescue you, listen to the irony of this. The horn was pierced through over and over again for my sin and for yours. The penalty, the just penalty of all of our sins was placed upon the horn of our salvation. But, the great horn of our salvation. In six hours, he was fully God. So in six hours, he could bear the full wrath of God. The full, just penalty for our sin could be poured out upon him. And in six hours, because he was fully God, he could consume it. He could have victory over it. And so he said, Tetelestai, one word, it has been finished. That is the cry 
of one in victory. That is the cry of the horn of your salvation. That is the cry of the defeat of the serpent of old. That is the destruction of your sin. That is the obliteration of your death. In the death of Christ, your death died. And he proved it. After three days, it had to be three, we had to know that he died. And we had to know that he came back to life. After three days, he burst forth from the grave. It must happen so the horn of your salvation could thrust through his enemies. For at the death and burial of our Lord Jesus Christ, he has run through the devil, your sin, and death itself. He's a pretty precious dude. He's, does that pass the test? No, no. He is the Christ of God. And, put on your seatbelt, and he is still alive today. Listen, now listen to me. He is still the horn of salvation today. He is still destroying the works of the devil today. He is still rescuing sinners today. He is the Christ of God today. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He's alive. And you can be saved today. So this is a final exam for you. Are you of the crowd or are you of the twelve today? Who do you say that Jesus is? He can't be a generic savior that's pretty interesting to you. You'll get around to him after you do this or that? No. Have your sins been forgiven? Has the light of Christ shone into your darkness? Is your death dead in the death of Christ? Is Jesus your Savior? Or just respect Him like the crowds? Or are you, like the leaders of Israel, reject Him? Or do you receive Him? Make no mistake about it, you have to choose. You have to choose. Listen, you have to choose. C.S. Lewis was right. He wrote this, quotes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone seeing the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, like, your sins are forgiven you. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him or kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End quotes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Have you seen the glory of Jesus, the Christ of God? He came to his own, but those who were his own did not receive him, the crowds, the religious leaders. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. 
even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who do you say that I am? What do you think the Christ of God demands of you? Some sort of shallow head knowledge faith that takes him as your savior but runs away with you being the lord of your own life what does it look like to believe into jesus he does not leave it to our imagination for notice the next verse in verse 24 verse 23 in our passage he tells us how to pass the test for whoever wishes well here it is If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his own life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... The Son of Man will be ashamed of Him when He comes in His glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Who do you say that He is? Father, we are thankful for the questions that Jesus asked in His ministry for they cut beyond the superficial, and they cut to the heart. And I pray like Peter of old, you in the day of your power would reveal to us, we're not born of flesh and blood, we're born of God. May God drop the scales from our eyes, soften our heart to believe that Jesus is the Christ of God. And Father, I recognize that like Peter and the disciples, they understood, but they didn't understand fully, and yet they believed. And so also we so desire, Lord Jesus, to understand who you are and what you came to do more and more in our lives, that you would become bigger and bigger in our lives. And so I pray, Lord, that this Christmas we would have seen from the scriptures more of your glory. And today as we celebrate with family and friends, we would celebrate, we would worship today because Jesus Christ is the horn of our salvation, the Lord of glory. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the baby in the hay, as the song said, the baby in the hay is the ancient of days drawing near. Thank you, Jesus, that you are alive. You hear this prayer. And so we pray in the name of the living Christ. Amen.